amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's Jill's pin is a dollar sign. And I think if you listen to this podcast, you'll understand why I chose that pin for today. Absolutely. So for Trump's entire life, he has managed to evade accountability and delay justice for his actions. But now more than ever before, it seems there's reason to think he may face responsibility for his conduct finally. On the federal level, there are congressional and Department of Justice investigations into him for the many components of January 6th and for the retention of documents at Mar-a-Lago. On the state and local level, there are even more. There's the New York District Attorney's trial pending a verdict for tax fraud by the Trump Organization, and the broader fraud case by the New York Attorney General. There's also the Fulton County, Georgia election interference case looming large, and the possibility that the Stormy Daniels case that sent Michael Cohen to jail could now reach Trump. Plus, Eugene Carroll has a defamation case uh, and a rape case against the former president. And today we are going to focus specifically on some of the current investigations into Trump and what allows him and other billionaires to get away with so many crimes. And we have the perfect guest today to talk about all that. Jen Taub is here with us and she will particularly talk about the New York trial, some of these other investigations and how Trump and other billionaires evade liability based on her book, which is called Big Dirty Money, hence my dollar sign pin. <laughs> it's The subtitle is The Shocking Injustice and um, Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, a thing I care a lot about, white collar crime. And besides being uh, an author, Jen is a professor of law at Western New England University School of Law and the host of a brand new podcast called Booked Up with Jen Tobb. It's all about nonfiction books, and I'm very excited because she's asked me to be a guest on her show uh, about the Watergate Girl in the next month. So I will see you all on her podcast soon. Thanks for being here with us today, Jen. Thank you so much, Jill and Victor, for having me. Um, it's nice to sort of meet you in person or close to it. <laughs> Same here. As close it's, as we will get in these days. <laughs> yes, yes. So let's start with the investigation into the Trump Organization by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Walk our audience through what that means and how serious of an allegation this is. This is what's going on right now um, is that a jury is home for the evening, but uh, they're going to get up tomorrow morning and continue their deliberation in the most serious case that has ever faced any one of Donald Trump's many corrupt businesses over the years. This is the very first criminal trial against his Trump organization. And not just, you know, this isn't, you know, a uh, misdemeanor, this is a felony trial. And there's a good chance that um, the, these two corporations that do business as a Trump organization will be convicted. Now, <clears throat> you may be aware that a business doesn't actually serve time in prison. Um, but there are serious consequences to that. And uh, I, I consider this to be, um, to be, will be a, a real demarcation between his past when he was able to get himself or his businesses out of hot water by just paying a fine. The, the largest one was $25 million in a civil settlement back when he, in the interregnum, you might remember that in 2016 for RICO, but he's never faced, his businesses have never faced criminal charges. And what are some in terms of the point. consequences, what yeah. are the consequences? Let's talk specifically uh, about in a case where the corporation cannot be jailed uh, right. and a fine 
you know, what would the fine be? What would, would officers go to jail to serve time for the corporation? What happens? Yeah. So in this case, because of the, um, the amount of money at issue, so let me just back up a little bit and say that the biggest consequence here could be that the, um, that the attorney general, who's not bringing this case, but the attorney general would be able to ask for the Trump corporations to be dissolved. You know, she has asked different, she's done different things in a separate yeah. lawsuit, but this would give her um, a little more power toward going into a court and asking for that. In terms of mm -hmm. whether um, anyone would serve time, um, that would be already, there's a guilty plea from the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg, right? So he will, he will serve time um, less than he might have due to his cooperation. What we have yet to see is whether, sorry, go, go ahead, Jill. I was just going to say that he's serving time for his own tax yes. fraud, not for the corporation's tax fraud. Well, so I just want to draw that distinction. Well, but, but this is the same case. In other words, just to be very it, clear. It's the same case, but, yes. but so he had a personal benefit from it. Yes. So what's going, let me just back up and for those who may not be following, because there are so many cases here. What happened is in like July of 2021, yeah. Uh, Alan Weisselberg, as well as um, these two Trump organizations, were charged with a variety of crimes under New York state law. And they all related to a multi-year, I think it was like 15-year period of time when there were, it was essentially, you could lump it together as tax fraud, where there were these under-the-table payments being made to Alan Weisselberg himself and to other employees of the organization in things like payments in the form of um, private school tuition for kids or grandchildren, uh, free, free housing in a very nice apartment, and so on. And the reason why this is, um, there, there are a number of reasons why this violates the law, uh, mainly that you are giving someone compensation and they're not paying their full employment taxes. You're not deducting payroll taxes that are owed at the at this local, the state mm -hmm. and federal level, and so on. And the biggest question, Jill talks about the benefit. Weisselberg was already pleaded guilty to almost all of the same charges that the corporations have been charged with. Um, the difference is here, though, and this is when I teach white collar crime, the, the first thing I focus on is the question of enterprise liability. So there's a question about when an author, when, um, and the standard is, is a little bit different in New York, but I'm going to speak generally. There's a question under law as to when an employee, an authorized agent of an organization, can, their actions can be imputed to the corporation. We talk about that sometimes right. as vicarious liability, right? And the federal standards are a bit different than the different states. But under New York state law, it's a pretty high standard, and it's sort of three-part. And so the only way these Trump organizations can be found guilty for these under the table payments that that uh, Weisselberg pleaded to, the only way is if they find that Weisselberg was a high managerial agent, that he was acting in the scope of his employment to benefit the corporation. Those all three things need to be present. There, to me, there's no question as a matter of law, even without the, the jury decided that he is a high managerial agent, he's a chief financial officer of the corporation. So the only real questions is whether when he was um, doing do, making these payments that was in the scope of his employment, again, even if you're doing something wrong, if it's your job to do these payments, again, I don't think that's hard to prove. The hardest point to prove to the jury is going to be, I believe, um, that he was doing it to benefit the corporation and not just for himself. So I have a question about so all these. I don't want to get too legalist. Let me, let's just finish <laughs> this. Go ahead, Joe. Without getting too legalistic, because that's not what our audience wants to hear, is to benefit the corporation in New York seems to mean much more than that it did in fact have a benefit, which there's no question that the corporation benefited by not paying the full deductible <clears throat> taxes on things. But it's whether it was intended when it was done, not just to benefit the person who did it, but to benefit the corporation. And so the question I have for you is, do you think Weisselberg's testimony met that standard or did he weasel too much to meet that burden? Uh, it's a good question. I wasn't in the courtroom, so I don't know. And I didn't get a chance because I was teaching to see that. So that's going to be that's going to be very hard for the jury about whether it was intended to benefit. You and I can talk about what the benefit is. You pay lower 
you, you don't have to pay as high wages. Because, right. you know, if you give me a free place to live, I don't have to be taxed on both the, you know, employment and then go, right. So we all know the benefit to the employee and to the corporation. Um, I think that from what I've read in the press, there was a lot, there are a lot of questions about what Donald Trump knew because they were kind of trying to show um, that if he knew it, it must have been for the benefit of the corporation. But, you know, I think it's going to be really, I, I think it really depends upon what the jury thought of his demeanor. What do you think, Jill? Did you get to see some of the testimony? I, I didn't. I was not in the courtroom and I have read enough about it that I am frankly a little bit worried. I don't want our audience to think that it's for sure there's going to be a conviction. Finally, the Trump organization will be held accountable for what is obvious wrongdoing. The benefit is obvious. The question is whether it was done for the benefit and with the intent of benefiting. And I think from the quotes I saw of his testimony, it was sort of like to the dying end, he was trying to protect Donald Trump and the organization. So I'm a little worried about it. Yeah. That's all. And that's why I just wanted to get your Look, opinion. Yeah. You I mean, much it, more expertise in that. No, I mean, Jill, but you've, you've lived this life. And I think, yeah. you know, more than anything else, when it comes to any kind of financial shenanigans, the hardest thing to prove, not, not, the letter of the law, but in a jury's mind is the beyond a reasonable doubt when it comes to intent. Yes. And it's because every, you know, I give the example to my jurors, like, you know, I say, who here has ever been to like a Best Buy or a store that has appliances? All of them have, right? Who here has ever been to a store where if you leave without paying, you hear the alarm go off? Everybody, right? So I would say if you saw me on video running out of a Best Buy with a, you know, with a <laughs> like, you know, TV set over my shoulder, um, you don't even need, and, and I say, well, I didn't, you know, I, I'm sorry, I just forgot to go through the cash register. Most people are going to be able to infer from my behavior and their own experience that I probably had the intent to take this, the TV said it wasn't an accident like I thought I'd paid, right? And the trouble is most people have not had the experience working in a large business doing financial accounting or figuring out how to buy derivatives inside of a hedge fund. So you look at, I mean, when you think about these complex financial cases, right? It, when, once something's outside of someone's experience, you start feeling uncomfortable. You start having reasonable doubts because you just don't have something tangible. You just don't have that common sense to attach to it. So I think it just depends on, you know, again, the demeanor of the witnesses, how good the closing arguments were, um, you know, and I, I guess the jury already had a question, which is never a good thing. So, oh, what, do you know what that was? Yeah, I read um, that it, the question might have related to the definition of conspiracy. So I'm not sure if one of the charges related to conspiracy, um, but that's interesting. It's very interesting. Very oh. interesting. So it's I, I just want our audience to know that there is a chance there's going to be an acquittal. Yeah. If you hear a football game in the background, I certainly do. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to call my husband on our house phone. So I'm going to put myself on mute for a second while Victor asks. <laughs> well, so, okay. So while <laughs> doing, yeah, I, I have another question about, so this is the um, Manhattan district attorney, but there's That's also right. Letitia James and her investigation. Help our audience. I mean, what is the difference between the two? I know it's criminal versus civil. Help us make sense of that distinction. Oh, and it's also even more than two... that. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so... Even lawyers who who practice, especially ones I know who practice corporate law, may not really focus on just complete how the, the jurisdictions split up in many of the states, including New York. So the Attorney General um, Tish James and the District Attorney of Manhattan um, uh, Alvin Bragg, or the District Attorney of Westchester County Mimi Roca, mm -hmm. none of them work for each other. <laughs> You know, some people, some people have this idea that there's like, there's an attorney general and maybe the DAs work for her. That's not the case. They're elected, they're all elected separately and they kind of have a different, um, you know, mandate, different bailiwick. So the attorney general of the state um, is, is given, you know, civil enforcement authority over a lot of the laws of New York to protect the people of New York. But she has limited criminal law enforcement. There's only certain statutes that she enforces and, um, and then you can always try to go to the governor and get additional authority. By comparison, each of these district attorneys for the counties in which they are elected have full enforcement authority for crimes that are committed in their counties. 
that's that's how I would try to keep it as, as simple as possible. So that's why we often see, you know, Tish James bringing civil cases. And we, we, we've been seeing Al, Alvin Bragg's office and his predecessors bring these criminal type cases. Yes. Although you have to admit that the civil case that um, she can bring could be as destructive of the Trump organization as any criminal conviction. Uh, the amount of damages that she's looking for could yes. really end Trump org. And she has now been able to get uh, an order that he cannot transfer assets to Trump org two that he has set up in another state to avoid uh, to start transferring assets so that if there is a judgment against the company, it won't have any assets to pay the judgment. That's right. And what was that number? Was it 150 million, Jill? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And um, also, she's, there's this, um, the, the laws, and she makes very clear in the, uh, she, the uh, lawsuit that Tis James filed on behalf of the state of New York on September 21st lays out the civil case, um, under, by the way, not, not related to the under the table tax fraud, but to a different yeah. tax um, business records and bank fraud and insurance fraud case. But this is, you know, civil cases. But she makes clear, uh, she made in two different places in her, um, when she when she uh, did the, the press conference and also in the documents, she speaks through them about how there are potential criminal charges that could be brought at the state and federal mm -hmm. level. And to me, that is the most interesting thing that she just stood up there and said, I'm just going to lay out these facts. And so the facts that she lays out um, in this in this civil complaint are, you know, are a path for investigation for the feds as well as for mm -hmm. Alvin Bragg. And we're seeing we're just today we saw some movement um, at the at the county level. I don't know if you, you all saw this, that a new lawyer was joining the team. It, it's it's fascinating. And I think her her press conference when she announced this laid out facts in such a clear way, almost like the January 6th committee telling the story yeah. of January 6th in its larger sense. Uh, she really told a story that people could understand what had happened in chronological order and could see the criminal culpability so I thought oh, yes. she did a really good job. It was so, uh, you know what I did? You're not going to believe this. So I'm teaching white collar crime this semester. Normally I go through the basic federal statutes, the ones that you have used before, Jill, um, you know, and, and look at the cases yeah. under them. But because this was so interesting, I said, we're not going to have class today. We're going to watch this press conference. Oh, wow. Oh. I mean, it, already, it already happened in the morning, I think. So I think I just watched it on YouTube or what, whatever. And my students, when they got to the part, because this is so just to, to refresh your, the, the, yeah. the memories of your of your listeners, this is about the allegations that Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal lawyer, had made back in early 2019 right. before a congressional committee. And the, the sort of broad brushstrokes are that Donald Trump, through his businesses, when it suited him, would on paper mark down the value, mark down, would, would, would say the value of a asset was much bigger than it was. And when he wanted it to seem like it was less valuable, he would just say on paper it was less valuable. So there would be reasons for tax purposes. Sometimes you would want it to seem uh, smaller. Um, and sometimes for bank loan purposes, you want to pretend you had this great collateral. There are also reasons when with real estate, when he wanted, when something was really not worth much, he would say it was worth a lot so that he could then give it a, an easement away um, and then get a big tax deduction. So there, it was just monkeying with the numbers, essentially. But what really... Um, what really was so good about it is that it was relatable. I don't know if you remember the part where they were saying that his apartment, there was something about one of his apartments. Yes, how large it was, it was. How large it was, but it was yeah. just, it wasn't that many square feet. And it was supposedly the largest, most expensive private residence in Europe, right. but he actually like lied about the square footage. Right. right. I mean, and so when they heard this, it was just jaw dropping for them. And what I ended up doing and the students are working on it right now is I decided for the final exam, I was going to have them pretend that they were um, newly hired assistant U S attorneys in the Southern district of New York. And they were going to look at footnote one, uh, which is mm -hmm. essentially the referral um, to the SDNY. 
Um, and they, I gave them excerpts from the filings. They didn't have to look at the whole thing. And they had to figure out whether they thought um, the strengths, what the strengths and weaknesses were of indicting Donald Trump under 1344, um, which is the bank fraud statute 1014, which is the false statements to a financial institution, right. as well as Trump organization using the principles of prosecution and so on. But what my students did for the midterm is my casebook doesn't go into specific detail around SDNY and Second Circuit law, like law of this jurisdiction. Right. So they went out and they made their, we sort of crowdsourced it among the whole class where they went and found the case law in the jurisdiction. So I'm going to get some really cool final exams. Wow. But I said to them, you know, some semesters, I don't want you to think this is partisan. He happens to be a Republican politician. Other semesters, I had the students write about the Menendez charges. You yes. know, I, I don't yeah. But this one is just, it's, it, it was just so big and it was just right in our lap. And we had been, you know, we'd done a little bank fraud and we'd done, you know, false statements law. So um, there, it's going to be so far so good. I, I think they're learning a lot. So maybe, maybe you'll have a roadmap to send to the Southern District of <laughs> no, New York. Be awesome. I mean, well, I, I might I'm, take the best of the exams and, and say, tie a bow on it and send it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm not in law school, but I'm, I'm imagining myself in your class right now. And if I had to go through all of that and, and learn about everything that Trump has done, I would be thinking, I mean, if anyone else did this type of stuff, wouldn't they be charged? Or is that not true? Or is this special to Donald Trump and billionaires? Well, those are two different categories, right? I mean, there's Donald <laughs> Trump and then there are people yeah. who are actually billionaires. But, yeah, um, you know, it's not the problem is I think that he is he, he is the a symptom of a larger problem that it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's really difficult to begin with to um, convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt when it comes to these complex financial crimes, especially when people are smart enough or savvy enough or have enough power that they don't get their fingerprints on. They, they don't, you know, Donald Trump, people like him don't, you know, don't have email. They have a close coterie around them, sort of like a mob person would, where they make sure that they never actually have to say, do this or do that. And they have their trusted people around them. And so assuming he's guilty of the, these many things, he's played it pretty well. Remember, he said, Roy Cohn, never wrote things down. He doesn't like people who, right. So part of it has to do with you, we, for, for, for good, not for bad. We have a society where we don't, just because we believe someone's doing something wrong, we don't just throw them in jail. We have due process. And so part of due process is people who have a lot of money and wealth can figure out ways to hire lawyers to avoid, you know, to, to make it more difficult to be held accountable, even on the civil side. So, yeah, I mean, I do think, I, th I think it, I think that it is as, you know, the book I wrote about white collar crime, I think it's true um, that if you're well, white, wealthy and well-connected, you tend to get away with more things um, of the same variety that people of lesser means who are often not white um, don't, get away with. I mean, you can just look at, you know, all the tax shenanigans we've heard about. Let's if we only even look at this case with the Trump organization, or we only look at the, the New York Times piece about the $400 million of apparent civil tax fraud, if not criminal fraud, that sort of just happened with Fred Trump's organization. If we look at that, those are those are big numbers. And we're sort of people sort of shrug because they're like, well, it's like Donald Trump said at his, you know, at the debate, you know, if I don't pay my taxes, that makes me smart. Well, when you're a poor black man and you don't pay your taxes, you're the guy who gets, you know, tackled and strangled on the street corner, um, Eric Garner, because you are selling loose cigarettes and not and, and depriving New York City and state of taxes. That was a ta that was ta a tax crime. Right. You know, right. or you. So, I mean, I just to me, the the injustice. I, I'm not someone who 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 wants anyone who messes up or does a little greedy thing to go to jail. But I am furious about the fact that we have two legal systems in this country. And I'm happy, though, that Merrick Garland's Justice Department um, under Lisa Monaco's direction as well is, are deciding to crack down and they made the announcement and they're living up to it. And it's not easy to bring these cases, but it's a choice. And sometimes people choose to do it. And sometimes they don't. And, and Biden made it a priority. So did Garland. And that makes me happy. As for as for Donald Trump, you know, like Jill said, I don't know if this is going to be the case, you know, but you we'll never see. Know. And it is also true that it's not just in this kind of case where there's a disparity, even in an, any crime at all. Yeah. The successful criminals have high priced, really good lawyers 
and the street criminal who may commit the same exact type of harm right. has a public defender who has hundreds of cases and not enough time to really focus on And you're going to plead, right? It's the guilty plea. You take the plea and you right. move on. Yeah. Whereas if you have enough money to appeal and appeal and appeal, it's a different right. story. Exactly. It's, it's one of the reasons that people hate the law system and lawyers. I am sorry to say uh, I completely get it. But uh, as long as we're on the subject, we should talk about white collar crime because you are an expert in white collar crime. And uh, for our audience, it's the kind of crime that's committed by someone who is respectable, someone of high social standing, uh, and usually in the course of their occupation. And it's significant because politicians and many voters think of crime as the kind that like, oh, I might get mugged on the street or I'm going to get robbed while I'm sitting on the, the subway. And so they talk about it as crime is something that is from lower social classes. And it's murder, it's assault, it's robbery, it's not uh, tax fraud, it's not bank fraud, it's not insurance fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and so give us a, a little bit more about white collar crimes, wh what exactly are white collar crimes, and talk about what you have written about, about how the former president has been committing white collar crime since 1973. So Thanks, let's Jill. focus I, on that. So um, I heard every single part of that question. And I will <laughs> say that I'm really glad that the definition Jill landed on for white collar crime is one that Edwin Sutherland, the man who coined the term back in 1939, used. And so I want to start by saying, <clears throat> before I talk about the specific types of things that we talk about as white collar crime, the concept originated um, not as um, not as a, a conduct type definition, but a status type definition. Mm -hmm. So Edwin Sutherland defined a white collar criminal before before we even thought about specific offenses as being white collar crimes. So he looked to, as Jill said, a person of high social status and respectability in their community who commits some kind of crime in the course of his occupation. That was what Sutherland looked at. <clears throat> and he was trying to do what Jill was talking about, which was to, dis to um, wake people up into realizing that it wasn't just um, the poor and it wasn't just what we would consider street crimes or violent crimes um, as being what crime is. And um, to be clear, Sutherland is, was not a lawyer. He was a sociologist and he was a criminologist and he gave birth to this almost entire field. And he, um, I guess he wouldn't give birth. He was the, he was the, <laughs> I, I guess I'm, 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 I just, you know, it's the, it's a matriarchy, I guess that controls everything. And I keep forgetting that men exist. I'm so sorry. No offense. Um, anyway, no, he's the grandfather of this concept. And he, uh, he, he, he gave this big speech as the outgoing president of the American Sociological Society. Um, and it was quite shocking. Like, have you ever heard of an academic speech that makes the, the newspapers across the country? Um, and people didn't want to face this. Well, he wrote, he wrote this in 1939, and then it took him 10 more years to write the book of the same title. This was called uh, White Collar Crime. And he focused a lot on the robber barons and antitrust law. And he even focused on things like copyright and patent infringement, because not being a lawyer, he was looking... Um, he, he cast a bigger net. He wasn't just looking at things that we would say, well, this is the mm -hmm. difference between criminal or civil. He was kind of saying any kind of wrongdoing that the wealthy engage in. And he was trying to show that not only was it more prevalent than society knew, um, but that, the, that there were victims. And finally, he was trying to criticize um, or trying to, he was calling for a better system of measurement. And this is still the case, at, at least the federal level, when the FBI reaches out to the local communities and the colleges and the states and the counties and the Indian tribes and all the places that they gather the data, the crime statistics, they don't really um, gather very good statistics when it comes to what we would consider white collar crime. And the buckets, they, for example, would consider welfare fraud or writing a bad check to be white collar crime. Mm. And this is not done by a wealthy person. So it's, so what's, okay, so let me say, so it starts out is this idea of a critique of the way we think about crime. And he wanted to have sociologists study criminal behavior and look at criminal activities of the very wealthy and the robber barons and so on. 
an industrial crime. But then what happens is because we're lawyers and know, you know, in, what are we going to do? We're going to define things as criminal offenses. And so the co-author of the book, um, the case book that I'm on, on white collar crime, Kathleen Bricky, kind of created these different categories of things that she said, well, these are the white collar criminal offenses at the federal level. So these are, these are these, this is the toolkit that are used. Sorry, Victor, now you're going to have to go to law school. Um, <laughs> the, the toolkit are things like, um, uh, oh, Ba um, uh, mail fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, um, f false statements, RICO, I'm trying to think of um, conspiracy, just very generic statutes. Uh, sometimes the environmental law statutes would be thrown in. And these are the statutes that are often used. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, obstruction would be another. So the, the ones that you hear all time and time again are going to be obstruction, making a false statement, and wire fraud. Those are like the top statutes. And all that means, it, all that is, is uh, um, depriving some, using using a scheme or artifice to separate someone from their money or property. That That's basically what it is. And the reason why it's a federal crime is you've used either the mail or interstate wire to, to commit the offense and so on. So what are the type of things that oh, Donald oh, wait. Trump- she, You left I, out the last, oh, okay, you're going to ask that question again, because yeah. that was the oh, last sorry. part of the question was, Talk about this in the context of Donald Trump. Donald yes. Trump, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So hold on. Sorry. Almost all of these, um, Donald Trump's various organizations have entered into se settlements with government entities, including securities fraud in the past, mm -hmm. um, some money laundering, which is another one of them, um, RICO, but civil RICO, because there's there's a criminal. There's often a civil and a criminal analog for these various statutes and you know, there he has, he has settled many of these types of cases previously. Also his charity was involved in, as yes. we might remember fraud. Mm -hmm. um, so go, you know, he, what's hard for me is that when he was running for office, I saw him as a quintessential white collar criminal and people were analyzing him through a political lens. And I had just finished writing a book about the financial crisis of 2008, comparing the savings and loan debacle to the 2008 crisis. And when I was studying the SNL debacle about these crooked bankers in, um, you know, in Texas and um, in California, a lot of what they were like reminded me so much of Donald Trump's behavior. Mm. And people kept saying, oh, let them get merged into a bigger company. Maybe they'll grow out of their bad behavior. You know, and there's, you see this over and over again, where it's kind of like a hot potato. Everyone's kind of afraid. It's like the too big to fail concept actually came from the white collar. I'm sorry, from the, um, uh, from the savings and loan debacle, yes, too big yeah. to fail, uh, had to do with um, American Savings Bank um, at any rate. Um, so this idea of too big to fail, it's a sort of hot potato that no one wants to have this big loss, whether it's the regulator or, um, or it's the system runs on the system. And Donald Trump himself made himself too big to fail by becoming president. And I think if he'd been stopped earlier, many years earlier, he never would have climbed so high. Now we have... Um, I mean, it's, just, it's really astonishing to me that we have a sort of mobbed up white collar criminal who reached the highest office in this country and now is still trying to get it back, um, you know, which is possible. Through equally corrupt methods. Yes. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Let's terminate the Constitution. But but how does Donald Trump and the Trump Organization for years, you know, 40 years at least, how have they gotten away with the crimes that seem to have been committed. And is it a failure of our laws? Are there too many gaps in it that need to be filled? Or is it uh, because well, he acts be, like right. a mob boss and doesn't write anything down? What exactly is well, it? Well, let me, let me just say, you know, because um, I wrote a book, I was carefully, even though I am a lawyer, I was carefully vetted. And so if you do read my book, Big Dirty Money, you can see all the footnotes. Where I'm, I'm very careful when I explain each of the things that each of the shady things that he was involved in since he entered the business world working for his father and discriminating against renters at their various buildings. Um, so, you know, I do think that having a very wealthy father who can kind of buy your way out of things, settling civilly when, it, you know, if, if it, you know, a lot of the big bankers during the 2008 crisis had the same thing, you know, they settled with the SEC or they settled with the FDIC. And you ask, you know, why didn't Angela Mazzillo ever get charged with anything? 
I have that question. It's no different to me than why didn't Donald Trump? Probably, you know, the SEC was willing to settle with him and it was just easier than bringing a criminal case that they might lose. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, so, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. So I'm wondering, you also write about some other billionaires in your book. Can you give us some examples of the other people who get away with similar crimes? And, and is it just a wealth thing? I want to be clear. I just want to be absolutely clear. What I, sometimes we're saying the word crime. Um, I don't. I, I have. Um, although Edwin Sutherland uses the word white collar crime to describe civil behavior, I can't do that. So I don't. I have no. Donald Trump so far has never been convicted of anything. But I can. Right. right? So I don't want to say he got away with crime because it's sort of. It's almost like a. Um, it's almost like a circular reasoning, right? If he, it's not a crime unless you're convicted of it you know what i mean so i just want to be very careful with that but i can say it looked to me like these were cases that might have been brought um and so you're asking for other examples one of the big examples i give is the sackler family Mm. who helped Mm -hmm. create through um helped create the uh prescription opioid addiction um that's that's one example um whereas you uh they're other examples are some of the there's this the I call them the the babies and the bankers during the dot com bubble. Some of the bankers in the annals in New York who were um, you know pumping up the prices of stocks that they were supposed to be um, analyzing the value of honestly for their customers, but instead um, were pumping up these prices and saying things you know giving giving not lowering the ratings when they should on certain companies because the other side of their business was underwriting and offering there, there, there's example after example, after example. So do you think that there is a solution to this? And um, I, I might debate you on whether if you aren't convicted of a crime, you have committed a crime. Oh, well, I don't want to say there. I mean, I, I might think I have to, let me say it differently. You might have committed it, but I don't want to get sued for defamation. Right. So I'm not going to say you have. No, no one who has (laughs) no one who hasn't been convicted can be said to be a felon. Yes, but it can be said that there are suspicious activities that have been investigated and that should be, you know, are properly being investigated now and in the past. And Mm -hmm. um, there have been some things that have been settled uh, with fines that could have possibly been and, the basis comes, for criminal action. And, and when it comes to Purdue Pharma, they actually end up settling a criminal case. Right. Right. And, right. You know, but not, not when I say they, the entities, twice, twice. And in fact, they use the, so, so there's a whole bunch of different examples in there. Um, GM is an example. You know, there, there are many examples, but what the troublesome thing is that until you, if you are looking for a solution, until we find a way to hold individuals accountable, and not just, you know, put them in prison for six months, but also take some of their assets away. You know, it's one thing if you have to spend six months in a minimum security prison. It's another thing if you have to give up your $100 million bonus. I'm pretty sure I know what they'd rather do. So is there a solution to this? What What would you suggest that might end well, this problem? Yeah, I mean, and the DOJ is doing some good stuff. I mean, some of the things I had said they should do, they're starting to consolidate and make more of a task force focused on white collar crime. And I know they are already had mm-hmm. some of that, but they're, they're dedicating FBI agents to focus on these areas. And I think that's really important. And they've been also giving speeches, which are, you may think, oh, speech, what's that? Why is that important? Speeches be- to the um, defense bar, the corporate defense mm-hmm. bar, because those lawyers don't want mm-hmm. their clients, you know, you know, kind of going so close to the edge. And they can say, these guys are serious. They've warned you. They warned them. They're doing these crackdowns. So that's one piece. I think the other piece has got to be cultural. You know, I don't think Mm -hmm. until you're not going to have educated jurors and you're not going to have constituents who are angry about the laws that need to be tightened up if they don't understand how this really works. So I think the movies that come out, whether it's the big short or any of the, you know, docu-series that show people how this really goes down, I think that helps. But until people really know how much of this goes on and how much folks get away with it, there's not going to be change. So last question on this subject before we move to, I want to talk about your podcast and before we run out of time, 
Is there any change to the laws that you think would make prosecutions either more successful or easier or something that might help uh, allow accountability for these kinds of crimes? Yeah, I mean, I think what we have seen when it comes to especially the public corruption laws, um, I think they have been they have been interpreted by by the Supreme Court over and over again in unanimous unanimous decisions as not going to not being strong enough. So I'm th- speaking about the federal bribery statutes, and it, it's too difficult to successfully bring a to to win a bribery prosecution against a public official. So I would change those statutes so that um, there is other than a de minimis amount that's specified, no gifts should be able to be given um, to public officials um, in exchange for or because of an official act. That's one thing. Um, and I make that really clear. And I would, I would, def- well, right now they say that's the case, but the way I would yeah. do that is I would define official act more broadly. I wouldn't have yeah. it just be the way the Supreme Court is interpreted under the statute, which would be a kind of decision about um it has to be a, a decision that's made. It's not just for access. Like I would not allow gifts given for access either. And I, you know, I think the way you do that, as as Justice Scalia said in his decision in the Sun Diamond case, you know, there are other statutes like the the um, labor laws that don't allow for any gifts to be given mm-hmm. to union bosses. You could just say no gifts, and then you would just and you would say, you know, there's an exception for. Um, if you declare things like if you've been brought to a dinner, the same the, the right. same things that are in place right now in terms of the ethics rules, I would codify those as law and just keep it much more simple because it's got to be a criminal law. And that would be that. I would also, there are other things I would do to create, to end the loophole that folks like Jared Kushner got um, when he was working at the White House. I don't think White House employees should be exempt from a lot of the um, laws that affect other public officials. I mean, I could go on and on. I've got a long list if anyone wants to invite me to to make these suggestions. We'll definitely have to talk with you more about it. But let's turn <laughs> to your podcast called Booked Up with Jen Taub. Tell us a little bit more about that. And how did you settle on um, talking about nonfiction books? Because I don't feel like that's a um, really common podcast out there. And it's unique, I think. Yeah, I I love to read. And when I was younger, I was um, kind of I liked narrative um, nonfiction and biography as much as I loved like, you know, novels like, you know, Henry James and reading Shakespeare. And I just I love to read. But I find these days um, that I always feel guilty if I spend my time reading for pleasure instead of for something I'm writing. And so it's kind of a head fake. I figured if that I had a podcast where it became my job, that I wouldn't feel so guilty doing it. Um, the other thing I, I realize is how much um, I do like conversation. I think during COVID, um, on the one hand, we lost seeing our friends face to face, but we got much more into these Zoom conversations. Yeah. And I developed a lot of friendships um, at a distance. And so the combination of that, of sort of enjoying conversations, loving to write books, but it's a, but also knowing that there, let, let me say this other piece of it. So it was loving to write books, but also knowing what a lonely process it is. So a lot of my friends who write books want to talk about it. I would say the last thing I've been thinking about doing this for two years, which was, you might remember when John Stewart um, and Stephen Colbert would have authors on their shows. Mm-hmm. And it was a big thing if you had a book published and you could get on, you know, the Colbert show and talk about it or, or, um, you know, John Stewart. Well, they don't do that. Those shows don't exists and no one invites authors on that much and if they they get on tv it's very you know small little moment maybe on morning joe or what have you um and so the the, the big thing is this um this program on um c-span called book tv and i was once invited to be a host on it i hosted um i interviewed um jesse eisinger on his book the chicken shit club also about white collar crime and when it came to my book someone interviewed me and i thought that's really fun I want to, you know, I was like, I want to have my own mm-hmm. TV show about books. And my agent said, you can't just get a TV show about books. You have to have a podcast. And so I'm, I thought about that two years ago. And then I finally, finally acted on it. So, you know, thanks to the Politicon people who somehow believe in me, even though I ramble on and on, I have my own show. 
excellent and and you're in good hands with politicon we i know them. i am they're amazing yes, so. for they're sure wonderful so one of the things that Jill and I um, want to try to talk more about is the importance of writing and reading. And I read that you were an English major in college, and um, I'm also an English major. And I'm Ooh. wondering what your tip is to young people who want to learn how to write better and become a better reader. Because one of the things that I um, I listened to part of the episode, I have to finish it with um, Dalla Lithwick, is how she, her process of writing. And I find that always really interesting. So for our young listeners, how do you think they can become better at the craft of writing and, and maybe even just a, just a reader? I think it depends on what kind of writing they're compelled to do. I think the key thing is if you are compelled to write, if you're someone who either keeps a journal or writes poetry or spends way too much time on Twitter, then you're a writer. You know, if you, if you, if you process the word through words, it, maybe you're a speaker too, then I think I really like what Dahlia says, which I think it's really important to um, try to write fast and get the flow and then don't worry what's on the paper and then take a breather. She doesn't take much of a breather, but she's you know been doing this for a long time and then step back and do your edits. Um, I think it's having a place that's quiet to write. Or if you're someone who, who doesn't like quiet, it means going into a crowded cafe and writing there. Everyone has to find their own way to find their own voice. Um, but the other thing is, and I think I, I swear by it, um, read what you wrote out loud. Mm -hmm. Sometimes students hand in papers and mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. did you read this sentence? Because I, I don't understand it's starting here and it's ending in a different place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing I think, you know, the hardest thing is uh, what I've learned in life about anything you want to do. If you keep showing up, it can happen. And in that, you know, there's some exceptions. Like if I keep showing up and ask to be, you know, in Swan Lake, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I did dance a long time ago, but it's not like I tried to do that. But, you know, I'm within, within reason, you know, if yeah. you sh keep showing up, you will get better and it can happen. And mm -hmm. you're going to not. The other thing is you can't please everybody. If you yeah. show your work to too many people, mm -hmm. it's going to be written by committee and it's going to suck. So you have to decide what you're doing. Yeah why you're doing it. Some people may think it's too, you know, too inventive. Some people may think it's too boring. You're not writing for them. You are writing the book or the poem that you want to read. And if you do that, it, it will be fine. I'm convinced of it. That sounds like really great advice, I would say. Um, and one maybe final question is because especially of your focus on nonfiction, and my grave concern about people not understanding the difference between fiction and <laughs> fact, I'm wondering if you have given that any thought about how do you get people to accept what is fact? How would you talk, for example, to a Trump supporter who, when you say, well, you do know that there were 60 cases and they were all thrown out. You do know that the ninjas found more votes for Biden than they did for Trump. And they go, well, I just don't accept any of that. How do you get them to recognize that facts are facts and that that's how they should make their decisions? I don't think I've ever tried that. And I, and I think most of the people I know who um, have been or are Trump supporters, I don't think I know many who still are, I think the way they rationalize it is they say, well, everybody does it. And so it's very, and they, you know, well, who, this one, you know, it's kind of like, and I try to then tell them about proportionality. So this is my, the best thing I think I've ever been able to do around this kind of persuasion would be um, Donald, you know, these people, Donald Trump lies all the time. And if you want to point out that this other person told two lies and he's told 10,000 and you're like, well, I guess everybody's a liar, so I like him because he lowers my taxes. My response is that would be like um, someone who was, you know, didn't have a medical license and was doing surgery, and they did a hundred surgeries, and ninety people died on the table. Yeah. And then you have a doctor who's done like ten thousand in their life, and only, you know, you know, they've done a hundred thousand in their life, and two people died. And you say, well, he's just a hack, that doctor. Yeah. I'm not going to go to. So you try to get people to sort of think about things that proportionality matter. Don't think in these absolutes, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't thought that much about convincing a current Trump supporter. Cause I think if I found one, I'd be running in the other direction because they might be trying to kill me. So. Well, it, it, it's possible, but I, I remain hopeful that we can 
get facts across to even the most ardent Trump supporters. And that's the only hope we have of convincing them that he is dangerous to the country. When Mm -hmm. you have Republican leadership ignoring his latest, let's terminate the Constitution, Mm -hmm. and not holding him accountable for it, I don't know where you go. I, I, and it, it bothers me. So I, I think about that. We ask a lot of our guests. Um, it, it's something that Victor and I both care about. And we've asked a lot of people. And so far, we don't have an answer that is like, oh, yeah. I, the closest we came was some, um, Nick Kristoff said, if you can get a person to agree with you on any one fact, Okay. You then have common ground and you can build from there. So if you could get, for example, in your case, someone to agree that two out of 10,000 deaths is different than 90 out of 100, you have somewhere to start to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's the way to do it is to just try to find those analogies that are slightly different, but give you the chance to move forward in common unity. Uh, I hope so, because without facts mattering, we are not going to be able to save democracy. So I agree. I agree with you. It's so true, Jill. And I'm glad that you're hopeful. I mean, I, I can't imagine being in your position when how different it was when the Republican leadership went to Nixon and said, it's time. Mm -hmm. It was a different world where there were three networks and they all had the same facts. They debated the policy implications, but they didn't debate truth. And there is only one truth. There is not simply alternative facts. There aren't two sides to a fact. There's a fact, period. So I I have to remain hopeful that we can uh, overcome this temporary hurdle and start to recognize that facts matter, that bipartisanship and compromise, actually get things done that will benefit the world at large instead mm-hmm. of deadlock. And yeah. so- I mean, Biden I, certainly proved that. He's done incredible things. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, ask, just Amazing ask Victor. Stuff. He has a whole list of all the wonderful <laughs> accomplishments. And, and, it, and it's true. It's quite amazing what can be done with an open heart to actually being willing to say, okay, I don't want it 100%. I'm willing to take 80%, 50%, whatever it is in order to at least move the ball forward. The way so, you would in any friendship or any any relationship. Yeah, I right. mean, because it's it's more important, at least for me, that everyone's kind of happy about where we go to the di- go to dinner than we get the restaurant that I want. And even more important things, things that are more relevant, like how we share our resources. Right. When it comes to some extreme things like democracy or the planet, you know, disappearing, I think that's where... <laughs> we get, get a little, I think people get much more worried about, about the lies and the dangers mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I wish you the very best of luck with your podcast. I, uh, Dahlia Lithwick was a great first interview <laughs> and uh, I know it's going to continue to be a great show. And I mean, you're just a knowledgeable person who adds value to our conversation and we're oh, glad that you. you shared your story with us today. Yes. Thank you for thank you, having me. I can't wait to have you on the show, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, stay with us. Victor and I will be back in a minute. So, Jill, that was such an interesting conversation. I think one of the things that I think we can maybe spend a little bit of time talking about in these next few minutes is um, we talk a lot about writing and op-eds, and we haven't really talked much about that yet. And I know you um, kind of got your jumpstart in this life as an MSNBC legal analyst from writing op-eds. And uh, I think a lot of young people, you know, I was thinking back to what Jen said about the process of writing and how um, Dahlia said that, you know, for her, what she tends to kind of find best is that you want to just get the first draft done and then you go through the edits. It doesn't have to be perfection. And that's one thing that I feel like, at least when I talk to a lot of my friends, there's this tendency for a lot of young people to, I think, um, go straight to writing and they want perfection on the first draft. And that becomes a really, I think, um, bad mindset because it really, I think, it kind of gets rid of the joy of writing. And so I'm wondering kind of what your process of writing is. And then we could talk more about op-eds and, and, and 
that type of writing. Yeah. And of course, op-ed is different. Um, and a memoir is different. Yeah. One of the things I put off writing the memoir was because I thought it would be extremely lonely. But when you start writing a memoir, you realize that it's you and your memories. And of course, nowadays, it's not just your memories. You have the ability to go online and check any memory you have. Yeah. Uh, maybe, well, at least for me, in a case that was so very public and, um, you know, of national interest, you know, I could look up what did the witness wear that day? And I can find pictures online so that I can check my memory. So it wasn't for me a lonely process at all. It really took me back. And then I would find photographs and I would start reminiscing. Um, I started because I learned in high school to do an outline. And I started with an outline of what I wanted to include. And when the outline got so long, it became a it question of, an essay. I, I had to sort of like, oh, my God what is this book really about? I can't have all of this in a book. And I joined a writer's group, a meetup group, and they reviewed my outline and said, you have about three or four books worth here. You have <laughs> to decide what's going in and what isn't going in. And that's where I started really focusing, okay, what fits and what time frame do I want to have in here? Um, and that was, that was the hardest part for me. But I did, by the time I got to that, after the outline, I had written, oh, maybe 400 pages of outline. I mean, so this is not like full sentences and full paragraphs. So you can imagine how many topics there were in that. Um, and then it was a question of, all right, which of those is interesting enough? And what is my theme? And then start writing. And then I decided on the voice I wanted to have, which was I wanted it to read like I was having a conversation with friends so that the reader was my friend and I was telling them a story about my life, a true story, but that it was me just talking to them, uh, not in an academic way, just in a friendly way. And so I just started writing as if I was writing a letter to a friend about what my life had been. And that's how it developed. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a, a fun process. And then, of course, you end up having an editor and you end up having fact checkers and you end up having to realize that you've used some of your favorite words 15 times in a chapter and you have to find synonyms for them <laughs> and different ways to express it. I never got good at um, metaphors and similes. And that, that was, every time I'd write one, they go trite, trite, can't do that. Um, so I just sort of wrote it straight out, yeah. flat out as just wrote it. And, um, and, and there were certain things I wasn't sure, you know, that I could include legally. And my editor said, let the lawyers decide that don't edit yourself, just write it. So yeah. that was, that was, that was my process. Yeah, it's a very interesting process of writing a, a book. And so definitely tune into Jill when she joins uh, Jen Taub next month. That'll be a very interesting conversation. I think we talk a lot about um, writing. And, you know, when she says, you know, you just have to read it out loud. Oh, that's our process. That's a great idea. It is. Yeah. I, when we go through some of the questions and, and monologue that we do, um, Jill always ingrains in me, you have to read it out loud because it just sounds different when you say it out loud. You begin to notice the redundancies and um, where things get confusing. And so it's a great, great tip. Um, and we hope that our young listeners out there, or really any listener out there who wants to get better at writing, um, will try out some of those tips that Jen offered. Uh, but we'll be back next week for another special episode of iGen Politics. Uh, oh, I also just want to remind, um, this is uh, being aired on Tuesday, uh, which is the day of the Georgia special runoff election. So if you haven't yet voted, go out there and vote. And if you know anyone in Georgia, make sure to tell yeah. them and go and vote and to tell them even if they get in line a minute before polls close, they can stay in line until they vote. So make sure to go do that and help out in Georgia because it's a very, very important election. Uh, we'll be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Be sure to like this video, subscribe on youtube.com slash Politicon, 
so you don't miss a single episode of iGen Politics. And you can also listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. So make sure to do that too and share this with anyone who might be interested in learning more about intergenerational perspectives. We'll see you next week. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.